Amen. Please be seated. Luke chapter 23, let's pick up where we left off, starting in verse 26. I'm going to read verses 26 through 38, but as has been my custom now, I'm never too old to learn new things. We're only going to read a few verses at a time, and we'll move on as we go. So let's look at first just these first couple of verses, starting verse 26, and we'll read through verse 31. Verse 26, now as they led him away, him being Jesus, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of people followed him, and women also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Lord, speak now to each and every heart by your Spirit. Thank you for your word. Lord, we need it more than we possibly can understand. It's the only supernatural thing we'll ever hold in our life. We pray that you would move amongst us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been with us in the study up until this time, just prior to this, Jesus was given the final sentence to death. Remember that he was betrayed. Uh, Judas makes a deal with the religious leaders. They take him out of the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus willingly goes. He's taken to the house of the high priest, Caiaphas, who rips his clothes and says, you've blasphemed by saying you're the son of God. They pronounce death upon him, that he's deserving of death. They begin to spit on the face of Jesus deep, deep in the middle of the night, spit on his face, punch him, slap him, mock him, but they couldn't kill him because they had to take him to who? The Roman authorities, and they do that first thing in the morning at 6 a.m. 6 a.m., they go to Pilate, they present Jesus, say, this man's deserving of death because he has blasphemed our law and our God. Pilate, who had no qualms with killing people, he couldn't find anything wrong with Jesus. As a matter of fact, the presence of Jesus was overwhelmingly convicting for Pilate. Pilate's like, I've sentenced a lot of people to death, but I do not want to sentence this guy to death. He did everything he could to get out of him. He sent him over to Herod, but Herod, who had killed John the Baptist, Herod says, I don't find anything wrong with him either, but I was hoping he'd do a miracle for me. He didn't. Herod sends him back after they beat him scoff him, mock him, put a crown of thorns on him, send him back to Pilate. Pilate tries to get the people to take Barabbas. Barabbas would be like a serial killer or something in our time. The man was a lifetime criminal who thought nothing of murdering people. He was a murderer. Barabbas was the guy that would slit your throat and think nothing of it. Take your wallet, take your life. He didn't care, and yet they said, give us that guy. Kill the man who's healed people, raised people from the dead, preached the gospel, loved people, healed thousands. We want him to die. And so Pilate finally, he does what he thinks he can do. He, what does he do? He washes his hand in a bowl and says, 
you guys killed him, not me. But Pilate still has to give the sentence, and he does. And he's condemned to death. That's what we see in just the prior verse before we read verse 26. And he released them to the one they requested for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. This was the will of the people. And let me remind you that had we been there, it would have been our will too. Because their will spoke for the will, collective will of humanity. Humanity said, we will not have this man rule over us. We will not have this man be our God. But thankfully, we'll see, not this week, but we'll actually get to, we'll see some people have a change of heart. Just like you in this room, if you today have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you had a change of heart. There was a time in your life where you said, give me Barabbas. Give me Bud Light. Right? Give me the nightlife. Give me something. Give me anything. But then finally, you came to your sense and said, give me Jesus. We want to look at three things today. If you can pull up my slide deck there. The first thing we want to look at. If you're taking notes, by the way, I've titled our time in God's Word. Compassion and the Cross. Compassion and the Cross. And we want to look at three things. The first of which is this calling, this pressing into service of Simon of Cyrene. It's, here, it's called, here he's called Simon a Cyrenian. When, one per, when a person was condemned to crucifixion, if someone was condemned to crucifixion, this is what would happen. They would be required to carry the cross beam. Not the entire cross, but the cross beam, the part where your arms would be stretched out. They would have to carry the cross beam to the place of crucifixion. Where they were going to be killed, they carry that, and around their neck would be hung their crime. This is the way Rome did it. You wear your crime around your neck, and you have to carry the crossbeam, which is incredibly heavy. You carry that to the place of your crucifixion. Around the neck of Jesus, it simply said, King of the Jews. There was no crime listed. It just simply said, King of the Jews which was Pilate's way, we know from the other guy, this was Pilate's way of needling the leaders because he thought Jesus did nothing wrong and they had a big problem that he was going to write king of the Jews and Pilate says, I wrote what I wrote. He said king of the Jews, that he had committed no crime, yet Pilate condemned him anyway even though he knew that Jesus had committed no crime. And in doing so, the Romans, they would then parade the condemned person all throughout the narrow streets of Jerusalem. When we were in Jerusalem... Uh, we went to the, each of the quarters. The, the, you know, you've got the Jewish quarter and the Arab quarter. and uh, So you go to the Armenian quarter, and you go through all these narrow streets, the Via Della Rosa, all that area, and they would parade the person all through the city. Why? They wanted to warn and intimidate as many people as possible. So even if you said, I'm not going to go out and get anywhere near the crucifixion today, they would bring it near you. They would try to make sure that as many people as possible would see it. But given, that, uh, given the prior scourgings and the beatings and the exhaustion and mental pain, uh, this morning, I got about four hours sleep last night. I feel tired. I cannot imagine Jesus had no sleep for a couple of days probably, and he had sweat great drops of blood, and he had been beaten, and he had been tortured, and all these other things, and then he has to carry the cross beam. Well, people would many times stumble under the weight of the cross, And this is what happened to Jesus. 
He was bearing his own wooden cross to be the sacrifice of his father. Think back to Isaac. Isaac in the same city, which was Mount Moriah, same city, Jerusalem. Isaac carried, said the Bible said he carried the wood upon his back as he went up the hill. It was already foreshadowing that someday another son, Isaac was the son of Abraham, who his own father was going to lay him on the altar. Another son who would also carry the wood would go towards the sacrificial place to give his own life. But unlike Isaac, Jesus was the sacrifice. Isaac was lifted off the altar and a lamb was provided. But unlike Isaac, Jesus stayed on the altar because he was the lamb. And so we see the partial, we see the foreshadowing, but Jesus is the full fulfillment of this. He would become himself that sacrificial lamb. Now, as Jesus exits the city, as he exits the city gates, look at the text. It says, as they, as they were uh, leading him out, a man was coming from the country. As Jesus is going out, the other passages, if you look at the other Gospels, says that, uh, some say he was going out of the city gates. He was walking out. As Jesus is heading out of the gate and stumbling now, he's, stumbling, he's been carrying the cross throughout the city streets. All throughout the city streets, he's been carrying the, the crossbeam. But as he finally, they finally say, now it's time to actually put the nails in, he goes to exit the gate, and the weight of it finally catches up, and Jesus begins to stumble under the weight of the cross as he's exiting the gate. Imagine, he's not just carrying a crossbeam. He's carrying the sins of the world. Can you imagine carrying trillions upon trillions of sins? Think of millions of crossbeams on his back. It's just mind-boggling that he's carried. If he just carried all the sins I've ever committed, just imagine if he carried all the sins you've ever committed, plus the crossbeam, plus he's carrying the grief of the disciples and all the people that are weeping for him. All of these things are on his weight, way more than even a normal person. But as he's coming out of the gates... Same time he's coming out, another man is coming in, and this man knows nothing about what's happening and may not even have a clue who Jesus is because he's from Cyrene. Do you know where Cyrene is? It's on the north coast of Africa. This is, a man, this is an African man from Libya. We believe one of two things. Simon of Cyrene is either 100% Gentile just an African man. We believe from the book of Acts, he was a black African man. The book of Acts tells us a little bit more about uh, who he is. He either was 100% Gentile or he was mostly Gentile but had some Jewish in him and he was there to observe the Passover because if you go to Israel today, you'll see Jewish people of every color on the spectrum that are Jewish there to celebrate Passover. And it was the same then because, remember, because of the dispersion, remember when when you had the Babylonian and Assyrian uh, uh, dispersions where they actually sent the Israelites everywhere, Jewish people intermixed all over the world, but many of them still retained their Jewish, you know, uh, their heritage as well as believing that they must keep the Passover. So we do believe that he was probably in Jerusalem to keep the Passover, but he was either Gentile that had adopted Judaism, which is possible, or he was mostly Gentile and had some Jewish 
in him, but we know this, he had no idea, or best we can tell, he didn't have any idea what was going on. He's just going into the city. Jesus is coming out. They cross at the exact same time. And a Roman soldier sees Jesus collapse and turns, grabs Simon of Cyrene and says, you carry his cross. Understand that the Roman soldiers, they would never pick up a criminal's crossbeam. They weren't going to pick it up. And no Jewish person, especially they had actually asked for Barabbas, they wouldn't pick it up either, right? So here comes what appears to a Roman soldier as a foreigner and says, you can take it for him. Carry the crossbeam. Now, this wasn't an optional thing. You couldn't say, I'd rather not. (laughs) Or you'd find yourself crucified right with him. So as Simon and Jesus are passing by in close proximity, the Roman soldier commands him to take the beam, and immediately his plans change. Simon's plans change that day. Notice that Simon is made to follow Jesus carrying the cross. It says, and when they had laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. So now the procession is like this. You've got some Roman soldiers that are going up ahead, the spikes. You've got Jesus now without the cross beam, walking forward, stumbling, exhausted. And behind him is Simon carrying the cross beam. And behind Simon is a group of mourning women. And behind the mourning women is a group of throngs that are actually going because they want Jesus crucified. That's how the procession looks. He's made to follow Jesus carrying the cross. Remember the words of Jesus? He said, and he who does not take his cross and come after me is not worthy of me. These words of Christ are figurative for most of us as Christians. I have never carried an actual cross of you. They're figurative for us because I've never carried an actual wooden cross beam. But these words and are figurative for most of us as we are, in a sense, to die to our own will and to die to our own life. That's the cross we're supposed to take up. We're dying to our own will and the surrender to the will of God. They are literally, though, fulfilled for Simon right out of the gate. They're not figurative for him. He literally is carrying a cross beam, and he doesn't even know who Jesus is. Even though Simon is pressed into this sobering and heart-wrenching service, can you imagine you're walking into Jerusalem and you see a man who's bloodied from head to toe, and now that beam is covered with his blood and you're carrying it, and you're pressed into service and you thought you were going into worship or to do business or whatever it was that Simon was going there, we don't know exactly, but all of a sudden his plans change and he's carrying Jesus' cross full of Jesus' blood, and there he is going through or going on his way to Golgotha there. What a heart-wrenching thing. But who is it, even though the Roman soldiers press Simon in the service, think about this. Who is it that's ultimately called Simon into this service? It's recorded in all the Gospels. God's called him into this service. It's, he just uses a Roman soldier. God's called him into this service. It's Almighty God himself. Imagine not knowing Jesus and then looking as you're crossing and your eyes meet his passing by. 
I've never seen Jesus literally in person. I've never, someday my eyes will see him face to face. But Simon, you could imagine when his eyes met the sun, when you actually look into the eyes of the Son of God, and he looks right at you, and you don't know he's calling your name to carry the cross? Unbelievable. He said, looking in the Son of God's eyes, he hears Jesus speak, because now Jesus begins to speak to these women. He's watching him willingly down his life, and I can imagine he's like, this man, like Pilate, is different. This was a divine appointment that apparently, did you know this apparently changed Simon forever? How many of you read the book of Acts? This appointment changed Simon forever. His family was changed. In one sense, he would go on from this day to carry the cross for the rest of his life. Did you know that later on, you ever heard of Barnabas? Barnabas and Paul? Barnabas was from Cyprus. He would be a Mediterranean man. Simon and his friend Lucius, we believe, were both African. So you have two African men, one Mediterranean man and Barnabas. Saul is Jewish, but he's Greek-Jewish from Tarsus. And the four of them end up, what an all-star team. Eventually, they end up at Antioch being the prophets, preachers, and teachers of the early church. This guy, Simon, will later become a prophet for the Lord. And he had no idea that he'd be pressed into service. By the way, Paul had no idea he'd be pressed into service either. He's on his way to Damascus. God says, now you belong to me. Simon's on his way to Jerusalem. God says, now you belong to me. Somewhere in your life, God says, now you belong to me. And he goes on to become greatly used of God. Paul would end up saying, Paul would end up saying that the wife of Simon was like a mother to him, that she was that much used in the life of the apostle. The early church would greatly benefit from this Simon, and he never was changed, he was never the same after this day. We don't know when he gave his life to Christ, but we know that he could never get the face of Jesus out of his mind, and he gave his life to Christ and followed him the rest of his life. This is what Jesus does, brother and sister. He compels us to drop our plans. Do you know what the word compel means? It means to press into service. You know the original Persian term, it goes all the way back to the Persian time, it means to be pressed into the king's service. Do you realize that Simon that day was pressed into the king's service, but not the king of Rome, the king of kings? He really was pressed into the king of Rome's service, but he would later realize, hold on a second, I was really pressed into the king of kings. That's what the word compel means. Jesus compels us to drop our plan, to turn and go in a different direction, to take up the cross, to follow him, to begin to share our faith with our family and with other people, and to take it to a lost and dying world. He's changed my plans many times in life. I never planned on being in this pulpit today. I fought it for years. I did. I mean, deep down within me, I was like, you, you, there's got to... Someday will come, Lord, but you know, just keep finding somebody else to do it. God pressed me into service. He wants to press us all into whatever that service it is. It may be children's ministry for you. Maybe go to Bonaire. It may be uh, to go across the street and take lemonade to your neighbor and just love on them. I don't know what it is. But Jesus, he has another powerful encounter here on the way to Calvary. 
And it's with these many women following. Let's look at the next part of the text. These women, they were mourning and lamenting him. No doubt that they were distraught. Here, Jesus in this horrific condition, he turns and speaks to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves. Even as Jesus is under such incredible exhaustion, pain, suffering, his absolute resolution to die, as well as his knowledge that he will soon be victorious. That, what a juxtaposition. On the one hand, Jesus is suffering greatly. But on the other hand, he knows he's going to win. This should give you a little confidence, brother and sister. On the one hand, you might be suffering. On the other hand, you should know you're going to win. If you're with him. If you're not with him, you would lose. But if you're with him, and he will be victorious, he knows he's going to defeat the grave. He said, remember all the times that he said, I will go to Jerusalem. I'll be betrayed. I'll be beaten, scourged, and killed. But on the third day, I will rise again. Not I might. And if things go well, I might rise again. If all the things fall in line, yeah, because he controlled the he controlled when the rooster was going to control. He controlled it, and now five, four, three, two, one. Here comes Simon. All of it. He's in control of the whole thing. Yet he let, gave up control of his body to be beaten and crucified. But he's still the power of God unto salvation in all the things that are going on around this scene. He knows the future. And in the middle of this, he knows the future of Jerusalem. He knows what's coming, and he compels these women. He has, presses them in to say, hey, if you're going to weep, I'm going to give you something you should be weeping for. Don't weep for me, because I'm going to win. Weep for yourselves and for this city. He proclaims and prophesies. He quotes from Hosea 10, 8 here, that the people of Jerusalem... What he's saying here is the people of Jerusalem, you will be seeing a great calamity coming in much of their lifetime. Because you're talking 30 to 40 years later when you get to A.D. 70. He's speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem that would happen under Titus. And then further out, even the great tribulation that will come on that same land when people again cry for the rocks to follow them. As followers of Christ, we actually see a little shadow of this in our own life. You might say, well, what do you mean by that? We actually see a shadow of this in our life. People see our born-again life, which bears the image of Jesus, and our surrender to him, and sometimes people look on us with pity. They look at us and they say, poor Christians. Their life has been reduced to following Jesus. What a career-limiting move. What a socially-limiting move. What a lack of fun. What a drag. I mean, that's what the world thinks. I mean, I've, I've worked with people that I know looked at me with pity and said, hey, poor you. You don't get to watch the movies we watch. You don't get to say the things that come out of our mouth. You don't get to go the places we go. You don't get to do the sin we do. Right? They look at us with pity, not realizing that this world that so many love so much it's destined for destruction. They do not realize that the feet of the ground they're standing on is reserved for the fires of God. Not realizing that although we may look like the odd man out, 
we're actually walking right now in victory. Right now. Not, not future victory. We're walking right now in victory because Jesus has already won. And we're on our way to join him forever in a place that is so much better than earth. This is how much better heaven is than earth. This is our victory. It is so much better than earth. It would be like comparing what's in the bottom of a trash can that has not been emptied in months to eating a meal prepared by the greatest chef on planet earth. Which would you rather eat? A trash can that hasn't been emptied for months. Our trash can, when it hasn't been emptied for three days, is pretty bad at the bottom. But we try and compare earth as if this is heaven. And Jesus says, you've got to understand, this city you love so much is destined for destruction. You need to see things from a heavenly perspective. But the religious leaders in the Jewish crowds of Jerusalem, they've schemed, they've demanded, they've begged for Jesus' blood. Do you understand they begged for his blood? They've begged for his blood to be shed, not knowing that their own blood would run through the streets of Jerusalem 30 to 40 years later. They have no idea what's coming. I'm telling you, the people in America that mock God, the people in this world that mock God, the people in this world that think God's not watching when they're looking at pornography, people in this world that think God's not watching when they're cursing, if people think God's not watching when they're using his name in vain, that they should be weeping for themselves, is what Jesus is saying. Because he is aware of these things, and Jerusalem would be leveled by Rome in many of these people's lifetime. And Jesus says, I know, I walked willingly into this, you will not walk willingly into what's coming. What a difference. Isn't it so much better to walk willingly with God into something than to let God fall on you? I'd rather go through the Red Sea than be the chariots coming behind. Which would you rather be? Ironic as these people, ironic is that um, those that wanted Jesus to die, they had aligned with Rome in his death sentence, and yet Rome was going to be the one who is going to kill them. Be careful who you align with in life. (laughs) Align with the Lord, because the world will stab you in the back pretty quick. Rome didn't care about them. They aligned with Rome to get what they wanted, and Rome was going to ultimately slaughter the city. As the Bible tells us, if we sow evil, we'll reap evil. And even here, Jesus maintains and teaches this these final hours. I know this isn't popular preaching, but this is what Jesus preached. He could have preached anything the last couple of minutes of, of his life, and he decides to say this? Unbelievable. Unbelievable that uh, so many pulpits in America refuse to preach what Jesus says instead, just try and make everybody happy. It is not my job to make you happy. It is God's job to make you happy if you become holy. That's what happens. So notice the last thing said by Jesus to these women. He said, if they do these things in the green, what will be done in the dry? If they refuse, what Jesus is saying, if they refuse the Son of God, walking on water, raising dead people to life, 
healing people, casting out demons, preaching truth with incredible power, raising and healing, not not just a couple people, thousands from Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, all the area that I'm using today's map to give you an idea. All of this, he says, if they would refuse the Son of God and all the miracles done in their presence, how much worse will their actions be when they think they've eliminated him? That's what he's saying. If they would do this in the greenwood, imagine what they'd do in the dry. Because if you try and light a green tree on fire, it doesn't light easy. But if it's dry and there's no life left, it's like those fires in Alberta. It becomes an inferno. And what Jesus is saying is when they think the presence of God is gone, their wickedness will get even worse. And it will bring their judgment upon them. This is a problem in our day too, isn't it? Today we have the green wood of the body of Christ. Worldwide, we have the Holy Spirit working through the church. Can you imagine what things will look like on this earth when the restraining influence of the body of Christ is taken out of the earth? You think you see a lot of crimes on your smartphone right now? When there's no Christian witness, when there's no presence of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, the church is taken out with the rapture of Christ, you can see how the world will become so vile. You don't want to be here. Paul writes of this in 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 and 8, and he says, now you know what is restraining. If he may be revealed in his own time, that's speaking of the Antichrist. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's always been at work. There's always been lawlessness. But he says, only now he, capital he, which is the Holy Spirit, who restrains will do so until he, which is the body of Christ, is taken out of the way. That he is the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ. We are the body. We're the hands and feet of Jesus on this earth. He says, when he pulls that out, you will see all hell break loose on earth because evil will have no gates to stop it. People will believe anything, deception, and the only thing that will happen, the gospel will go forth, God will raise up supernaturally 144,000 witnesses, and there will be the work of the Holy Spirit in a different way. But the church itself, Jesus is saying, if the green wood turns to dry wood, then it really gets bad. And we see in our own country the less and less that the body of Christ is actually green wood, we see our country going further and further into rebellion. Why? Because the green wood's not acting like green wood. The green wood of the church is acting like dead wood. Let's look at the next aspect of our time in the Word. He endures. He not only compels, but he endures. Jesus... In verse 32, it says he's brought there with two others, criminals, and led away and put to death. When they had come to the place called Calvary, which also means Golgotha, or place of the skull, they crucified him, and the criminals on one on the right hand and on the other on the left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with him sneered, saying, He saved others? Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked, coming and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also is written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Jesus, Simon of Cyrene, following right behind Jesus, carrying the crossbeam. The soldiers, they all arrive at Golgotha, place the skull. I believe we... Uh, saw that area, and we were there, which is today the Garden Tomb area. It may not have been that spot, but I, I believe a lot of evidence shows that it probably is. But regardless, 
them and the procession come to the place where the crucifixion will take place. It was by a main thoroughfare road where everyone could see the condemned die. It wasn't really, I don't believe that it was on a hill like you see. Now, all of Jerusalem is elevated up anyway, but it was on a, it was on a main thoroughfare road where people coming from the different directions would see the criminals there being crucified. This was Rome's way of, again, as many people could see the, uh, the death and the barbaric nature of it, that it would be intimidating. The soldiers, uh, they begin to do what is commonplace in the Roman Empire, nailing the condemned to the crosses. This was not a big deal to them. They did it a lot. They conducted hundreds of crucifixions in a year. So they begin to do what is commonplace to them. They just nail Jesus to the cross. They nail the other criminals to the cross. They get them ready to be hoisted up. And they stand them up in position, and they put them up into position, into the ground, so they're visible. And what I was told when I was in Jerusalem when we were talking is that really the crucifixions were closer to eye level, not way up. But whether it's eye level or a little bit elevated, um, in other words, it's not like far away. You're pretty close to when you're walking by. And this is what they did. And along with Jesus, is not just him. They have two other criminals, one in his right hand and one in his left hand. Perhaps and likely they were career criminals. We're going to look more at them uh, when we get to the next part of the text. We won't really look at them today. And we'll come back to Jesus' prayer here in verse 34 as well. But the Old Testament scriptures, they are fulfilled as he's raised up among two thieves. And the soldiers below, they're carelessly gambling over his clothing. Hey, the guy ain't going to need these anymore. Is their attitude. He's not going to need them. They, free clothes for us. It wasn't like today, you don't go to Macy's and pick something up. I mean, clothing was, took a lot of work to make any kind of garments, so they began to gamble over it. But Isaiah 53, 12 said, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Psalm twenty two eighteen. David wrote, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Both these things were prophesied. Jesus would always fulfill every single prophecy that was written about him, that was messianic, and that was, due, uh, that was uh, necessary for the cross. Now, it's about 9 a.m. at this time. Remember, he goes to Pilate at what time? 6 a.m. He's condemned. He's taken. By 9 a.m., he's on the cross. He's hoisted up, and he's crucified, which is just written as a matter of factly there in verse 32. And he was crucified, and they led him to be put to death. Can you imagine, can you just imagine enduring just the physical pain and the suffering of the cross? I mean, I don't want you to dwell on it too long, but just to think, can you just imagine the physical pain of having these nails driven through you Crucifixion was and is one of the worst ways a person could ever experience death. One of the worst possible ways a person could die. The scene was absolutely horrific and barbaric. Only the evil of mankind could create such a thing. Are you amazed at how evil human beings are? If I didn't know any better, I'd like pets better too. But I'm still called to love people. Right? I kind of understand how unsaved people think, kill the people, keep the dogs. I get it. 
But God loves human beings even in their evil, brutal, violent, wicked state. C.S. Lewis said, The cross didn't become a symbol of the arts until all who had seen a real one were gone and it died off. Did you know early church didn't wear crosses? It'd be like you wear an electric chair around your... They just couldn't do it. Once you had seen one, you couldn't make it a piece of art. You could say, I want to draw a cross. Just didn't happen. Came later on. Now we have a huge one in, in, in the church here. Um, but it wouldn't have been that way for the early church. And there was Jesus, though, hanging willingly by nails in his feet and his hand. And while people passed by to gape at him, to stare at him, to mock, to ponder, was he really from God? Was he not from God? Let's have a discussion about it. Much less that he actually is God. Although a group of mostly, the, the mourners was a smaller group, just most, they were at the front of the procession, mostly women. By the way, men, once again, women taking up the lead position. Later the apostles would be the men they're supposed to be. Thank God they were. Because it's good that the church was started by some men that became surrendered men. But at the early stage here, it was mostly these women. They were up close. There were a few other men. Uh, they were mourning. But the vast majority of a great multitude was not mourning. Matter of fact, they didn't have the least bit of compassion or sadness for Jesus. They had been so blinded by the leaders, so blinded by their own desires, so self-deceived that Satan had gotten in to their midst, and they took great glee and mocking his death and humiliating Jesus. It's hard to comprehend for me. I, I think it is for you. We, we've now seen ISIS in our lifetime. We've seen them crucify people. We've seen them behead people. We've seen them set people on fire in cages. I can't fathom it. My eyes have seen it. My spirit can't take it. How about yours? I have seen it. I know it's evil, I know it's from the pits of hell, but it's hard to comprehend people actually mocking and enjoying someone die a slow and torturous death. But this is what was happening here. They're not, this is like a mocking, making fun, spitting on him, all of these things. But understand too, that in the ancient world, public execution was so common and so barbaric but so done so often that it began to dull people's senses. Beware, Christian, that the things we allow in life that dull our senses. It dulled their senses to these things. And many over time, not only did it dull their senses, they, can, they became convinced that people suffering torture was reasonable and they deserved it. So when Jesus is getting this punishment poured out on him, many of them felt in the darkness of their own deception that Jesus deserved it. Matter of fact, worse than that, they thought they were on God's side. The religious leaders, they thought that God was with them on this. They say, hey, God's really proud of us because we have put to death this blasphemer. and We've made him humiliated as he should be. You know, it's possible to feel right and be completely wrong. It is possible for you to feel as right as right can be and be dead, dead wrong. It's, right to, it's possible to feel right and be com committing evil. I believe some of the terrorists believe they're doing Allah 
good things, but they're still doing it for Satan. Remember that Satan himself, Satan himself had gone into Judas to confirm and deliver the betrayal of Jesus. And Satan in the demonic world, you realize that Jesus would have seen the demonic world around him when no one else would have seen it? Do you realize how many demons were probably converged on Jerusalem this day? This is what they had longed for forever, to see God killed in their presence. This was a party for the demonic world. Jesus would not only see the human world, he'd see the angels and the demon world all there at the same time. The entire universe is converging on this scene, and he sees the whole thing. No one else would have seen it. His activity in the darkness in Jerusalem that day, it would only add to people's vile accusations, their cold-hearted mocking, their blasphemy, their attempts to humiliate God's Son. And by the way, it's possible to humiliate... It, um, it, I'm saying, I should say that, it is impossible... It is impossible to humiliate Jesus today. He sits on the throne in heaven. Aren't you glad? You can't humiliate him anymore. What you can do, and people do do, thousands still mock him. They have no real knowledge of the cross. They have no comprehension of the cross. They have no understanding of the cross. They have no appreciation of the cross. and Consequently, no conviction that comes with the cross. You see, without the cross... Mankind never really understands the seriousness of sin. Does that make sense? Without the cross, once you understand how barbaric it is, the evil that was there, once you understand the cross, you understand the seriousness of sin. It's no longer, yeah, I once took a cookie out of the cookie jar. That's the kind of belief a lot of people have. Once you understand the seriousness of sin, you understand the finality of death, you understand the reality of the judgment to come. Once a person truly gets a sense of the cross, it stops them in their tracks. I was stopped in my tracks in 1995. It got my attention. Tears running down my face. My wife and I get, got saved the same day. You did not have to convince me I deserved hell. You did not have to convince me I was a sinner. God had convinced me. I didn't see Jerusalem that day, but boy, I saw that I needed the cross. And first... Corinthians 1.18, Paul writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I've learned that my preaching will never help you. I could get better and better at preaching. It could never help you. Only the power of the cross could help you. When I'm gone and everyone else that's ever preached before me, the world will, will not miss, in a sense, will not miss Martin Luther, will not miss Billy Graham, but the world can't miss the cross. Paul is saying that compared to anything else Paul could ever preach, Paul's saying, I, no matter what I've learned, no matter what I've understood, the only thing that you'll ever see dripping off my lips is the cross. That's what Paul said. Only the cross can save a life. There was a church in England that had on its building, on the outside exterior of the facade of the building, it had on the building originally, it said, we preach Christ crucified. And block letters attached to the building exterior. Over some time, the crucified fell off. So it said, we preach Christ. Later, 
Christ fell off, and all it said was, we preach. Isn't that the sad commentary of our day today? You can go anywhere and hear preaching. You won't hear the cross hardly anywhere. You're hearing it today because we're going verse by verse. This is where we landed. If you're visiting today, you say, was this a setup? Did you do this sermon on purpose? No. Well, God might have set you up like he did Simon. He does that. But we're just picking up where we left off. But even if I pick up where we left off, I still have to incorporate the cross. You know Charles Spurgeon, he preached 6,000 messages called the Prince of Preacher in London. He preached 6,000 messages, never preached the same message twice. But he incorporated the cross into every message. He always preached Jesus Christ crucified because he said, if I leave out the cross, there's no power in the message. I and other pastors would be well to make sure we learn from that. So much of the church today, there's no conviction of sin because there is no cross. Millions of Christians have no heart or burden for the lost because they have forgotten the cross, have taken for granted that Jesus, when he paid for our salvation, it cost him everything. Did you know that the word crux, you ever use the word, hey, the crux of the matter. Did you know the word crux comes from the word crucifixion? The crux of the matter is that unless the cross opens our eyes and softens our hearts, we'll go on living Listen to this, Christian. We will go on living as if Jesus did us a minor favor and we'll do him some minor favors in return. That Holy Spirit gave me that in my mind and I had to write it down. It hit me like a ton of bricks. The Lord was saying, unless you see the cross, you'll think I've done some minor favor for you. And you'll give me minor favors back. All right, I'll come to a Sunday service. I'll do it. All right, I'll give you some. Let me see what's in the wallet. I got two bucks left. Yeah, you can have it. All right. All right, all right. I'll go to the Christmas thing, but I ain't inviting anybody. You see? We'll, have this, we'll do God a couple of minor favors, but Jesus said, I didn't do you a minor favor. I saved your soul. What could you pay for it? What could you offer me? Your 401K? That's paper to me. Right? As I prepared for this study, I, I felt convicted personally by the Holy Spirit that I had forgotten and neglected the depth of what Christ had done for me. Personally, I can't speak for you. I personally felt convicted. And that's a good thing. Conviction brought me to my knees and asking the Lord to reveal to me by His Spirit the depth of what He's done for me. And it caused me to press in this week in my prayer life. And as I was pressing in, as I was praying and pressing in, and then praying over areas of my own life where, hey, like you, I need God's help in a bunch of areas of my life. I need God's help in all kinds of things where I need God to move and deliver me in ways that only he can. But I found myself, brother and sister, I found myself not wanting to press in and love Jesus more for what I need from him today. But I found myself pressing in because of what he's already done for me. What he's already done. We don't even appreciate what he's done because we're always asking for the next. I don't want arthritis. I don't want this. I don't want this. And God says, have you forgotten what I've already done? Oh, Christian, we need to see that the blood that flowed down is the only thing that will cause our love to flow up. The blood that flowed down is the only thing that will cause our love to flow up and then out to other people. It's the only thing. Let's close with this last 
item, this prayer of Jesus, verse 34. It's in the middle of what we just read. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How does Jesus say these words? How? Could you say them in his place? I, I, I just boggles my mind. How does he even mouth those words? As the hymn says, amazing love, how can it be? Right? What kind of love comes down out of heaven, puts on human flesh, walks as a man when he could soar above the clouds? You ever as a kid wish you could fly? Jesus can. He said he's going to come in the clouds. He's just going to... When he went back to heaven, he just... What kind of person walks the earth when they could fly around? We are mesmerized by superheroes. Kids love Superman. Why? Because he flies everywhere. Jesus can do that, and he chose to give it up for a while. Uh, That just blows my mind. What kind of love comes down out of heaven, puts on flesh, walks as a man when he could soar like the eagles, endures lie after lie told about him in his earthly ministry, endures fatigue. He never had to be tired once, and yet he was. He endures betrayal. He endures the tempting of Satan. He endures the contempt of man. He endures malicious criticism, rumors, innuendo. Finally, the agony, shame, and cruelty of the cross, all at the hands of many created. That boggles my mind. This is the only pure love the world has ever seen. This is the only pure love. All other manifestations are of love are tainted, including our best efforts ever. No matter how good you love your spouse, you have a tainted love because it's, you're still, you still have sin in your life. You're not perfected. Not the love that flowed from Jesus, not the love that flowed from his blood, not the love that flowed from his lips. This was pure, and it purifies. As another hymn says, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood. Of Jesus. That's true. Only the blood of Jesus can wash away the minds and attitudes so prevalent in the church today. Only the blood of Jesus can wash away apathy, self centeredness, lack of care for souls, complaining, ingratitude. Christian, how is your love life? Not with your spouse. That's important. We love marriage, we love God's definition of marriage. Your love life's important with your spouse, but that's not what I'm asking. How's your love life with Jesus? Jesus told the church in Ephesus when he wrote a letter to them through an angel, through the apostle John, Revelation 2.4, I have this against you. You have left your first love. So many Christians used to be so excited about Jesus. I want to get to a Bible study. Now it's, well, you church has too many Bible studies. Tell that to the church in Acts. They'd laugh in your face. We have seven a week, and we try and have 20 if we could. They were saturated with love. Today's like, eh, there's too much on the, I don't, I, don't want, I don't want to do that. You guys, have, you guys are demanding too much. And, you know, Bonaire, it's a Sunday night, goodness sake. Don't you know that Sunday night football? Did you find another day of the week? Right? But Jesus would look at us and say, what did I save you from? <laughs> you know? But only the blood of Jesus can change. That wasn't in my notes. I don't know where that came from. Jesus said, you used to be excited about me. 
You know, imagine someone says, I used to love to sit and talk to my spouse with a long phone cord, wrapping around the house for hours. Now it's like, all right, I'll put in two minutes before I go to work. You see, this is what Jesus wrote to the church. He said, you've lost your first love. You used to embrace my words. Now you feel that I am getting on your nerves, taking some of your time away. And Jesus says, all right, if that's the way it is, then I'll leave you to your own flesh. But he doesn't leave us alone. That's why he wrote the letter, right? That's why he wrote the letter, that you come back to your first love. Jeremiah 31.3. See, this is the way God loves us. Yes, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I've drawn you. That verse dovetails with Revelation 13.8. says, the lamb slain for the foundations of the world. Do you realize the everlasting love and the cross were both given before mankind even appeared on the scene? Jesus fulfilled it, but the Father already said it was coming. He said, I've already loved you with everlasting love, even when you failed, even when you've gotten backslidden, even when you've stopped caring anymore. He said, I've already loved you with everlasting love, and I've slain my son before the foundation of the world that John 3.16 would come true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that First John 4.19 would be true of us. We love him because he first loved us. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we bow before you now. We're convicted. We're humbled. Lord, I, I, don't, I don't need to speak for anyone here. I'm convicted and I'm humbled that I have at times, even recently, overlooked what you've done on the cross. Lord, I want to ask you to forgive me for my own complaining at times, whining. And Lord, really, it, it's looking at self when we need to look at the cross. Lord, when we saw the cross like Simon and Cyrene did, it changed him forever. He, never, he, he could never be the same because he saw you on the cross. He couldn't even go back to Africa. He ended up being all over, all over the Middle East and He couldn't do anything but just go and share what he had seen. Lord, I pray that this morning you've given a fresh vision of the cross. Lord, we're sorry for our sins. We ask that you cleanse us. Before the worship teams, I just want to, maybe Tawani, you play quietly. Just give people a chance to just pray. And we're not doing the Lord's Supper this morning, but just ask the Lord to forgive you if you have taken your eyes off the cross. They've been on yourself. Just take a minute to say, Lord, as the prophet said, woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm an unclean man, unclean lips. Take a minute just to pray and ask the Lord's forgiveness. And I would encourage you, get on your knees this week. Before I prepared for this message, God had me do things different. And I think he's going to have me do a lot of different things. So get ready. But uh, (laughs) he just had me just read it out loud a lot. It kept getting on my knees. I'd read it out loud in my office, get back on my knees. Read it out loud, get back on my knees. Read it out loud, get back on my knees. Because I want you to get it. Yeah, because I wasn't there that day. But the Holy Spirit has this way of taking you back as if you were. You know? Because he wants you to be transformed. Not to be informed. We have enough information. We need to be transformed.
pray for a minute. Bow your heads. Just thank the Lord. Ask him for forgiveness. 